Regulating and potentially expanding gambling is expected to be a major issue when lawmakers return to the state capitol for the 2020 legislative session. And a person at the center of this intense policy debate is State Representative Dan Shaw. The Imperial Republican joins us on the latest edition of Politically Speaking to talk about the ins and outs of gambling in Missouri. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Julie O'Donohue, and I'm here with my co-host. Jason Rosenbaum. And we are here with Representative Dan Shaw of Jefferson County. Welcome. Good morning. Good morning of the beautiful 113th House District, correct? Yep. It's uh, basically, if you go down 55 from the Merrimack uh, all the way down to Highway M, both sides of the highway, it's uh, basically the gateway to Jefferson County. Representative Shaw, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and how you got interested in politics? Well, I uh, grew up in South County, uh, and everybody from St. Louis wants to know what high school. I went to Lindbergh High School, uh, went into service, uh, uh, served in the United States Air Force. And then I went to, uh, came back, went to Parks College, got an aviation degree, worked uh, aviation. Uh, decided that wasn't necessarily for me. Went into tool sales with Snap-on Tools and then uh, got into work for my dad in the Grocers Association and have been in the Grocers Association since then. Have you um, served in any other elected office? Yeah, I currently serve... Uh, on the Windsor C1 School Board, and oh, I wow. have for a number of years. Uh, I've also served as a council president for church, uh, w- which is a tough position because you're dealing with people's faith, and it's ultimately the most personable position I think someone could serve. You were part of the 2014 red wave, so to speak, where uh, Republicans gained a lot of ground in Jefferson County. What, what prompted you to get into this wacky world of Missouri politics? Well, at the time, I was on the school board, uh, and I still am on the school board, and it just seemed like the, the, uh, a good opportunity for me to serve uh, in the school board, or school uh, serve in the General Assembly. Uh, it was an open seat, and it just seemed like the right time for me and my family to go ahead and do that. What was that 2014 uh, election cycle like? You know, from, from watching it from afar... You know, Republicans did very well that cycle, but I'm sure there was a lot of work that went into turning a traditionally Democratic county like Jefferson County red. How did it, how did that happen? Uh, really, I think all the candidates that's, that won in Jefferson County that year uh, worked their tails off, uh, door to door, shaking hands, talking to people, becoming visible. And I think that's the key to any election, really. Uh, State House, I believe, is probably the last uh, step in any elected official where you can still meet most of your constituents and still have a have a relationship with them. Once you get to the state senate, the numbers start getting so big. But at the state house level, you can still get to see a majority 
uh, of your constituents go into the subdivisions, knock door to door, have events that they're able to come to. I mean, we even had a, a doggy snow cone day where, where dogs could come and have snow cones. That's amazing. Come, come do that friend. event near my house. Well, come to the 113th, and you'll see it again this summer. Do, do dogs like snow cones? If you put uh, chicken broth on them. Okay. And, uh, and one of our local companies uh, there th- with um, the, the snow cone company actually did that for us. They came up with the idea. Recently, you were the head of the interim g- gambling committee in the House uh, that was looking at gambling issues ahead of the 2020 session. Uh, mm-hmm. I think everyone expects sports betting to come up. There's issues with what are called gray machines and whether they're gambling devices or not that are popping up in gas stations and truck stops and, uh, you know, veterans' homes and places like that. Um, So I guess I wanted to ask, how did you get uh, to be the head of the committee? Well, last year there was uh, the speaker uh, came to me and asked me if I'd carry a bill on uh, VLTs. Uh, It went through budget committee, and we got it out of budget committee committee. Although barely, but we got it out of budget committee. And VLTs are video lottery, lottery terminals. terminals. Right. And, and the issue at hand, to, to give the listeners a little background, uh, currently in the state of Missouri, there's uh, between ten to 14,000 of these machines, gray machines, uh, that may or may not be legal. It's going through the, le- through, through the legal process on the other side of the state, and we hope to have some remedy, initial remedy, first quarter of next year, but for totally play out in the courts, we're probably looking at 21 or 22 for final judgment from the Supreme Court on it. Uh, and, and you'd use the word veterans homes. It's really fraternal organizations have had these machines in their establishments for years. Right. I apologize. And, and yeah. No, it's fine. Like American Legions. American Legions. Elks Lodges. Elk. Yeah, yeah, you're fraternal. So, uh, and, and they've been allowed to operate there for years. And that's how a lot of these uh, fraternals pay the bills and contribute the large sums of money they do to the, to the local community through charity. So there's that segment. Then there's the segment that we're starting to see more visibly outside of the fraternals in the truck stops and the convenience stores, uh, basically all over the state, Ten to 14,000 of these machines. Now, are they legal or not? That's the great debate. And we didn't, we didn't answer that question in our committee. What we did was we wanted to find out what's going on in the gaming industry, both in the VLT or the, the gray machine area, also sports betting. They've both been very uh, highly energized discussions the last couple of years in the, in the General Assembly. So the Speaker asked that we go ahead and look at that going into the next year. The gray machines you're talking about that are in the truck stops, do they – transmit taxes to the state that other gambling devices pay taxes for? Uh, The current machines in the truck stops in any of these facilities do not contribute to the tax revenue of the state of Missouri in any way. Is there any estimate on how much money the state is missing out on because those gray machines are not paying taxes? There's been the the lottery reported to the committee that they've lost $50 million this year, and they believe it to be to those. Uh, so if you look at that, that's a substantial amount. Also, during our testimony, that if we were to legalize this, that the the if we were able to convert the gray machines to a VLT style machine, that we could uh, somewhere between in year four or five of the rollout, uh, several hundred millions of dollars. I just want to um, like explain for listeners if you haven't seen these machines, they are actually literally gray. 
Okay, they they look they look uh, to me they look like a, a like a lottery machine or a, a they look like a video a, poker machine right, is the easiest correct. way to describe. Yes, and, yeah, and we use the term gray because they're not. Legal right. and they're not <laughs> illegal. Right. So we, we just use the term gray. And the one sidebar, the funny thing on our report, one of the biggest contentions at the end when we got the report done was how do we spell gray? G R A Y oh, or G R E Y? And when you put it, let's say, let's say you put $2 in this machine and you win, you get money back, right? In most of them, you, you'd have the opportunity to get money back, yes. Slot machines in a casino. Um, in addition to generating money, they are regulated so that they're supposed to operate in a certain way so that people actually do win, you know, mm-hmm. some money. I, the, some of the concern about the gray machines is maybe these machines aren't operating in a way that's f- quote unquote fair. Right. And, and there's one by my house that says all $500 payouts be paid out the next morning. And it's a handwritten note on the machine. <laughs> so, I mean, is that. Uh, what do you take from that? Is that I mean, does anybody ever really win the five hundred, or may, maybe next week to increase sales they put all thousand dollar payouts that we paid out the next day? Uh, I I think it, this is an interesting issue that we're seeing across other types of industries too. So I kind of think the gray machines are a little bit like the scooters. Like there is no regulation of them because a company found a way to get into a market where there isn't an existing regulation, maybe. I guess that's the debate about whether they're legal or not. Well, that and, uh, you know, what we learned during the committee was that both from the Missouri Highway Patrol and from the prosecuting attorneys from the, st- all from the association is that they don't necessarily have the time or the manpower to go out and oversee this as it stands now. One, what do you want them doing? Do you want them going in and, and investigating a fraternal organization, your VFWs? Or do you want them going out and investigating the arson or the, the murder that happened? Right, because the state police in testimony said that they are pulling people off other things to help investigate right. these gray machines when people report them as being an illegal machine, again, whether they are or not, in right. their, you know, uh gas station. Now, I imagine that since these machines, again, are not paying taxes and are not being regulated like other machines, the companies behind them have probably hired a bunch of people to make sure it stays that way. I want to ask you, what has been the political pressure for someone like you to basically leave the status quo on these machines? There, There has been pressure on all sides on this one. I knew when, when the speaker and I spoke about me chairing this that it was going to be a interesting journey, let's put it that way. Uh, it certainly has been. Uh, there's been uh, players on both sides of the argument, the casinos, the gray, the VLT side, all, all of these people, and then sports betting as well. They've all come and they all have very compelling arguments on why their side is right. Uh, it, it's been quite intense, to be honest with you. Uh, our report was not met with a lot of praise from either side because we didn't tell them how to fix us. It was more of an educational report and a status report, and they were very disappointed because they all expected us to uh, take what they've come in and told us they, they wanted 
Uh, ours was a status report because I thought that's what we needed to do, and the committee thought it was best to put a status report on where we were in gaming in Missouri rather than try to tell the legislature how to fix it going forward. Now, I want to go step by step of those various interests. What did the casinos want your committee to recommend in particular? They wanted all these gray machines to be made illegal and remove them completely from anywhere other than a casino. What did the gray machine align companies want? The machines that the companies that either sell or service them want to make sure that uh, they believe that they're operating in a, in a legal market, a legal market, and they're operating within the law. They want to make, make sure that whatever we do, that they're allowed to continue to operate and that a lot of them are small family businesses across the state, they want to make sure that they have an opportunity to play in whatever is created if we create something so that they can maintain their support of their communities. And finally, what is like the Missouri Lottery want and VLT aligned machines want? Right. So then there's the lottery who uh, will do whatever we want. They just want to be able to contribute continue to tribute at high levels to education in Missouri funding. And uh, I think it's a concern of theirs that they've seen their revenue drop because of this this activity. So they'd like to be part of the solution, whatever that solution is. They didn't advocate that they be in charge or not. Uh, they are capable, if we were to do something, that they would be able to operate that, oversee that system. And the VLTs would be more of a it's not a generic term. We use it as, as the group that wants to make sure that all the machines are interconnected through a centralized database like they've done in Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Georgia. Those machines are all interconnected and overseen and regulated and taxed appropriately from a from the state level uh, rather than just from operators turning in their tally sheets. You had Democrats and Republicans on your committee they seem to be a little bit all over the place. So can you give well, us a rundown of how people feel about gray machines? Yeah, our committee was very uh, diverse. It was uh, from all over, the, all over the state. We had uh, Representative Bosley from here in St. Louis, uh, and we had uh, Democrat Wes Rogers from Kansas City uh, as our Democrats on there. And the thing I was proud about is our report was a bipartisan report. Everyone signed on to the report. Uh, and our biggest confrontation on the was how to spell gray, uh, <laughs> which I, I think and we gave. I, I ran as a nonpartisan committee, and, and Representative Rogers has thanked me for allowing him several times. I let him have a lot of leeway in his his questioning, but it wasn't a partisan issue. And I agree with you; it's more of a regional issue. And I would almost, I don't know if I should say there's not, but I think a lot of it has to do with. Uh, possibly faith decisions, uh, biblical, uh, where you stand religiously on gaming. And I think that's really where it came. But, you know, sports betting was a whole different animal uh, than than the the, the slots. We're going to talk about sports betting after we take a short break and hear from our sponsor. And we're back with Representative Dan Shaw. We're going to move on and talk about sports betting. So I think this is probably something that um, the general public cares about a lot more than gray machines. Uh, is there a will to do something that legalizes sports betting in some fashion? I think so. I, You know, uh, th there's some 
agreement between uh, the casinos on how it might work. Uh, we had all, in our committee, we had most of the major league sports teams uh, or the sports leagues come in and talk to us about their concerns and what they wanted. And I think they're all manageable uh, requests or, or things that they think would make it better. Uh, the one for Major League Baseball that I found most interesting was the use of official data. Currently now in Missouri, if you want to do sports betting, you're going to go offshore uh, and use some type of yeah. non-regulated like app app on your phone, basically. Right, but you're, it, it's going to be something done off outside of the United States. Now, now there are some older. Um, I'm going to stereotype and say gentlemen who might still use a bookie. But yes, I think you're correct. Exactly. And <laughs> so the, that that would be your bookie or going offshore on on your phone or whatever is it's unregulated. And if you're going to bet on one of the, and you know everybody, I think a lot of people still bet on the people to win or lose the game. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of side bets on who's going to hit the next 400-foot home run or who's going to pitch the, the next no-hitter or who's going to, who's going to uh, score 13 run pools, those type of things. On the 400-foot home run, who's measuring that 400-foot home run? Is it the bookie? Is it the guy in Tijuana that's measuring that? Or is it Major League Baseball data? Mm -hmm. Major League Baseball was very insistent that it should be done through a uh, some type of regulated data source, and they would recommend themselves. So you mentioned the casinos. Is there is that one of the conflicts with legalizing sports betting about where it would happen, where, whether it would have to happen like at casinos or whether it would be allowed like on a phone app? Because I imagine that for a lot of people that want to do sports betting, they would rather do it from the comfort of their their couch rather than have to go to a casino that may not be close to them. Yes, uh, and the question is, do we allow it in casinos, and do we allow it on to be done over the Internet on your phone? And we saw some great examples of success on both of those. Uh, some of the states that have legalized gaming have made sure that the the Internet betting is tied to a casino in some fashion. Uh, one of the concerns also with being able to do it on your phone is there are certain areas in the state you shouldn't be able to do it. Should you be able to sit behind home plate and wager bets from there? Uh, it's a great question. Should, should, should the teams that have invested in their infrastructure around the, around the ballparks or rinks or whatever, should they have some type of say on who the sports betting is done by in those areas? Some great conversations. Uh, Major League Football or National Football League Players Association came in and was concerned about real-time biometric data being used to influence sports betting. Yeah, I was going to ask that. I, I wanted to get that to that. I thought some of the most interesting testimony came from the um, Players Association. So I think the someone from the NFL and the NHL came. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The NFL, they, they talked about, uh, the, the Players Association from National Football League talked about biometric data being used in real time. Apparently there's equipment that they can measure heart rates and different physical conditions of these players while they're playing. Right. And if you're going to bet on the football kicker, the place kicker, uh, and you see his heart rates up on the sidelines, and that's indicative of him missing a field goal, 
that might influence your bet. Right. And so they, they were concerned about the security of that type of information and how it could be regulated. Right. And so th- those are interesting concerns that I never really thought of. What we also learned was on the, the app side of the sports betting is geofencing, learned some of the rules and, and abilities to geofence so that in St. Louis here, once you got to the middle of the Poplar Street Bridge, you couldn't place a bet if you were headed to Illinois uh, and vice versa. Uh, you so it it was really a good technology session for us learning about that. Then there's also software out there uh, to make sure that you're the one placing the bet and that you're of that right age. It's uh, Know Your Customer software where you actually uh, scan the front and back of your driver's license and take a selfie of yourself. Mm. And those three things are compared to make sure, one, that it is a valid ID and that you are the one on the ID. I wanted to go back to something that the, the players' associations brought mm-hmm. up. So the other thing they brought up is concerns that people will be approaching players, uh, basically asking them to throw a play or throw a game um, Mm -hmm. because they have a lot of money riding on whatever decision that is. Or even, I gather, people who uh, might come up to them and, like, assault them because they lost a lot of money (coughs) on a decision. Uh, do you do you think that that's something that the General Assembly has to address if they're going to legalize sports betting, some sort of... uh, I guess, protection for the players or some. Yeah, the the conversation you're referring to uh, that took place was uh, player may get called or show up with with a bundle of money on his doorstep one way or the other to try to influence them. What what does the player do in that situation? Does Who does he turn to? Who does he uh, ask for, for help uh, so that he's not the one in trouble? But also, how do we protect those players from from – that type of activity. And it's uh, something that we have to be prepared for and make sure that the laws beyond sports betting make sure take into account that those type of activities could occur and that there's not a, a loophole in the law to threaten a professional athlete with, with harm due to their outcome of a game. Has there been any discussion? So there's also a proposal to allow collegiate athletes to start earning money from at least one of the people who's introduced it is or is going to introduce is Wes Rogers. Mm -hmm. Um, Has there been any talk about uh, college players in in particular and also like this other proposal maybe to allow them to generate money and how that might interact with sports betting? Uh, It was discussed. I think it'll be uh, more talked about during the the, the actual discussion of the bills. Our, what we tried to do in this in this committee was make sure that we understand where we were at and what hurdles we may have going forward. Uh, we didn't get into specifics like that, but I think that is something that you probably want to watch this year. The NCAA isn't in real good favor with many members of the legislature for, <laughs> for their actions that they've uh, taken in their, uh, how can I say this? Uh, uh, oh, the fact that they, like, made it so... Mizzou couldn't go to a bowl game and lost scholarships because I guess a tutor helped a bunch of players. But frankly, Mizzou yeah. was bad this year, so it's like I don't think they were going to a bowl game to begin it's, with. It's not much of a loss. Right. I do kind of want to shift to another topic and and talk about something that your Jefferson County colleague Rob Viscovo tweeted out recently. Rob Viscovo is the House Majority Leader, and he is going to be the Speaker of the House uh, in 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, in, he was responding to this increasing talk about uh, gun control and gun restrictions that have been talked about not only by 
mayors in St. Louis, Kansas City, Columbia, but also Governor Parson. I'm going to read part of this statement. While we have seen talk recently about gun grabbing laws and red flag laws as a way to curb violent crime, my office as majority leader and many of my Republican colleagues remain committed to protecting the Second Amendment rights of law-abiding Missouri citizens. As a legislative body, we have advocated for policies that are tough and smart on crime without infringing on the constitutionally protected right of lawful Missourians to bear arms. During the 2020 session, we will again look for solutions to keep guns on the hands of criminals while also protecting gun ownership rights for the good people of Missouri. Missouri already has existing laws that extensively and vigorously work to get stolen guns and criminals with guns off our streets. However, if the heavy penalties that already exist for crimes such as murder and assault don't effectively deter criminals from committing these acts, how will any new laws produce better results, especially if they're little more than window dressing? I know that was a long quote, and there's actually more of that that we'll post in the in our post, but I wanted to make sure it's in context. That doesn't make it seem like any major gun control laws are going to pass in the Missouri House. Is or, that is that or fair even, to say? Well, I want to say some people on the other other side from uh, Representative Viscova on this issue think the restrictions, particularly the ones that Parson said he might get behind, are not major. They think that those are are pretty modest. But any any gun restrictions sounds like they're not going anywhere. I, I think uh, I think our focus should be on enforcing the laws that we have, making sure that the prosecutors prosecute. The, the laws that we have. Uh, we need to support our law enforcement more than we have. Uh, but I, I, I think his, his, his release is spot on. We have a lot of issues out there. I think the first step is to use, what, use the tools that we currently have. If there is a situation, I'm sure it'll be discussed in the Capitol and met with uh, uh, open minds. But at, at the end of the day, I don't necessarily see um, the General Assembly as a whole passing much gun regulation uh, at all this year. So I haven't really heard like a lot of evidence that say the, the uptick in violent crime and shootings in St. Louis is caused by people that legally purchase guns. It would stand to reason that many of them are probably not legally able to own guns in the first place. But I guess my my, my follow-up question to that is, Let's say there's a proposal to make background checks more robust, and the background check takes two or three minutes out of a gun buyer's time. Is that really an infringement on the Second Amendment, especially if it may provide some assurance that a gun isn't being sold to someone who has a felony on their record who isn't allowed to own a gun in the first place? Well, I I think the current checks do now ensure that felons don't aren't able to legally obtain a gun. Uh, the felon also understands that he cannot legally or she cannot legally obtain a gun. I think it goes back to your first thing that these crimes are not being compa- are not being committed by law-abiding citizens. And I don't think that check is going to make a difference to them obtaining a gun or not. I think uh, we just saw in Jefferson County a spree of uh, uh, car break-ins. Uh, People need to remember to lock their car and don't leave your firearm in your car. Those are the simple things that I think we can do as citizens without change, without us doing anything to the General Assembly. I think we as citizens have to take responsibility for the guns that we have and make sure they don't fall into the hands of the people that shouldn't have them. I think we need to take responsibility. Uh, the firearms I own, 
or double locked in a safe, both trigger locks and also in a safe. Uh, some other people may have them a little bit more readily available, but make sure you take care of them. And I think if we do that, uh, we're not going to get the guns out of the bad guy's hand by passing legislation. What we need to do is give the law enforcement and the prosecutors the tools they need to make sure that there's a penalty for, for committing these acts with, with these guns. Governor Parson and the mayors of Kansas City, St. Louis, Columbia, Springfield, I think yes. I got them all. Those are the big four. They um, had their press conference at this point, I feel like, a few weeks ago where they talked about the things that they thought should be done to help address um, gun violence. Uh, and and then there was there seemed to be a lot of grumbling, like maybe behind the scenes. And then uh, we get the statement from the Scovo, I want to say like a few weeks later. Do you think it was necessary for him to make a statement? And, and why why is he the first person we're kind of hearing from in the General Assembly in an in a official capacity saying we're, we're, we're not interested in doing any sort of gun restriction? Right. And if on a lot of the uh, Facebook and social media accounts of several representatives, they've already come out with a less official statement. Uh, Representative Vescovo has been a leader since he stepped in that Capitol. Uh, he'll be, uh, he'll, we'll have another great year on the floor because of him. And I look forward to serving my last two years in the House uh, as, uh, with him as Speaker. Uh, and he has taken it upon himself to, to be our leader. And, and we have allowed him to do that as well. And I thought it was, um, very good leadership from him to make that statement. I think it's very um, probably spot on as far as how most of the people in the caucus feel that let's enforce the laws we have. Let's use the tools that we have, give to more tools to the prosecutors and law enforcement so they can do their jobs and ensure they are doing their jobs. Uh, and I, so I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, or not. no, it, it does. I, I guess I was, um, I, I think you're right. There's been a lot of, like, grumbling and individual statements from individual lawmakers. Or, or, or I wouldn't call it grumbling, just people. Yeah. And it, we are going into an election well, there, year. There did so, seem to be some – some people were not happy with the governor. Well, and, you know, and I think that's that's going to happen anytime. I mean, regardless of who the governor is, you're going to have differences of opinions, times. And sometimes, uh, you know, that's the way it's supposed to be. But, you know uh, – we still get along even though we disagree. Uh, we're not like the Beltway where once you have a difference, it stays that way. Uh, we can have difference of opinion and still get things done in, in Jefferson City. From looking at our coverage of this, what the governor and the mayors were talking about was passing a state law aimed at, at keeping handguns out of the hands of minors and violent offenders and domestic abusers. On its surface, that doesn't seem super radical. This is not like the Beto O'Rourke plan of going in and, and, and confiscating or buying out AR-15s. Why should there be like that? Or implementing a wait period to get your gun. Or something like that. Yeah. Why should there be angst of, of these proposals or the governor for saying that these are, are maybe ideas worth considering? Well, I think what the governor may have been saying, and I don't want to speak for him, but a lot of those things that you're talking about are already in state statute. They just need to be enforced by the prosecutors and give law enforcement the opportunity to and the tools so they can uh, do these enforce these type of laws uh, I think what we need to make sure we enforce what's on the books and I think you know a 
if you're convicted of felony abuse or felony assault, you're a felon. You don't have the right to own a gun or purchase a gun or possess a gun. So let's use those tools that are there. Instead of wasting our time on a bill that is just going to be there for fluff, let's give the law enforcement and the prosecutors the tools they need to be successful to take care of this. Before we leave this topic, I think we should mention that after that press conference where Governor Parson was with the mayors, he then sent out a blast, uh, I guess, reassuring all of us that he is a supporter of the Second Amendment and um, and gun rights. He he sent out like a clip of a radio interview he did. So which which signaled to me beyond the the what I'll still call grumbling we saw on Facebook and social media that he had heard from some people that they were not very happy with him. I will tell you that uh, I've never known the governor not to be a supporter of the Second Amendment. Uh, I think he, coming from a law enforcement background himself, I think he understands that uh, law enforcement needs more tools to enforce what they have. And what's more disheartening to a law enforcement officer is to put a case before a prosecutor and a prosecutor decide that, well, because it's you, I'm not going to file a claim or file a case or charges or because I don't want to prosecute that crime. It's it's not their choice. And I think that's what we need to really focus on is allowing the prosecutor, ensuring the prosecutors prosecute what they need to. We do a segment where we ask um, elected officials to plug something in their district that they think people should come see. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, uh, Jefferson County it, is I think a thriving community and in my district alone we have two of the best school districts in Jefferson County uh, Windsor C1 and Fox C6 great school districts both of them invest highly in in the classroom uh, Windsor uh, has made a very concerted effort to take care of the special needs children to a level that has increased uh, the desire to live in that district for that Fox has a great uh, educational program as well. So if you're looking for a good home with a good education and good representation from the from the state level, I'd recommend <laughs> coming to 113th. You can find all of my stories and Jason's stories at stlpublicradio.org. Jason, where can we find you on the World Wide Web? You can follow me at Jay Rosenbaum on Twitter. And you can follow me at J.S. O'Donohue on Twitter. And Representative Shaw, where can people find you do you have a website, Facebook page, Twitter? Basically, the best way, I'm a little old-fashioned. We do have a Facebook page. I'd welcome you to come find us there. But the main thing is I like talking face-to-face. If a constituent has a concern whether they live in my district or not, I'm always willing to talk and meet and uh, figure out how best we can serve each other. A novel concept. I think that's great. Well, All thank right. you. Come back and listen to us again. 